Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. I also have a Patreon that has episodes drop on my off weeks, where you can enjoy more Texas content. This is one way you could help support me and my show. Or I have a link where you can buy me a coffee. However, there is a free option that is actually really helpful to me and my podcast. To go and rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. Some have already left a review, and it means so much to me. It also helps my show get noticed by more people. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a female murderer from 1995. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas True Crime. In 1995, Michael Jordan came out of retirement, returning to the Chicago Bulls to win three more championships before permanently retiring in 2003. That same year, on October 3rd, O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder. Another thing that happened in 1995 was the Dallas suburb of Grand Prairie suffering its deadliest fire in history. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. A pounding on her door woke Edith Ayler at around 6 a.m. on February 2nd, 1995, in Grand Prairie, Texas. A man was frantically banging on her door, yelling, Fire! Edith opened the door to a man yelling that her house was on fire. Very confused, Edith ran through her house but saw no fire. Then as she ran out in her backyard, she realized it wasn't her house but the neighbor's house directly behind hers. She saw that flames were consuming the house behind her, and it was so intense that it was sending towering flames shooting through the roof. At the same time, Jorge Larizano let his barking dogs out in the backyard and noticed the house next to his was on fire shortly after 6 a.m. Jorge yelled for his wife to call 911. Firefighters arrived at 6.12 a.m., six minutes after it was reported, and the fire was brought under control by 6.27 a.m. A gaping, blackened hole was burned in the roof above a room in the back of the home. Inside the home, in the back bedroom, five bodies were found. 46-year-old Parthenia Polly Stidham, her four-year-old son, Cardell Stidham Jr., and three of her grandchildren, eight-year-old Takula Hartwell 
five-year-old Dominic Hartwell and two-year-old Jasmine Hartwell. All five were found huddled in Polly's five-year-old son's room. The bodies were found burned beyond recognition, and positive identification was delayed because forensic investigators had to use medical and dental records. While waiting on identification of the victims, an investigation started into the matter of how the fire started. Neighbors claimed they were confused about how Polly and the four children were unable to get out of the house in time to save themselves. Because before firefighters arrived, an unidentified man driving a snack food delivery truck on nearby Beltline Road noticed the fire and stopped to pound on the door of the home, shouting and ringing the doorbell. At the same time, another motorist pulled up to the house and blared her car horn. But inside, investigators found traces of a flammable liquid found inside the back bedroom. Although no cans of gasoline or other flammable liquid containers were found. At this time, investigators could not rule out the possibility that one of the victims set the fire, as there was no indication that they were forced into the bedroom, and it was impossible to determine if any of the five were dead before the fire started. Once all five victims were positively identified, Wanda Hartwell, the mother of the three kids staying with her grandmother, was told of their deaths, and she had to be hospitalized for emotional trauma. Polly's oldest son even came to the destroyed house about 1 p.m. in disbelief, driving there to confirm it was really his mother's house that had been on fire. Rumors began to go around that Polly set the fire intentionally, and this was a murder-suicide. But next-door neighbor, Jorge Lorenzano, couldn't believe she could do something horrible like this. Jorge was a minister at a church in Arlington and told reporters that his family had developed a friendship with Polly since the death of her husband last year. On that Sunday afternoon last year, when her husband had a fatal heart attack, Polly rushed over to his house and knocked on the door. She came knocking on their door screaming and asking for help as the paramedics worked on her husband. That's when they began to have a closer friendship with her. Jorge went on to say that Polly had been depressed ever since her husband died. And in addition to that, her sister had died two months before her husband. When asked by a reporter if Polly could do something like this, Jorge stated, You never know. But from what we know of Polly, I don't see how she could have done that. I know that her husband's death hit her hard, and her sister's death two months before, and she would get really sad. The investigation seemed to conclude the next day, as Fire Marshal Cliff Nelson determined that Polly Stidham sprinkled gasoline in her son's bedroom and then set fire to it, killing herself, her son, and three of her grandchildren. All died from smoke inhalation and thermal burns. Tests from fibers from three different areas of the bedroom were found all soaked with an accelerant believed to be gasoline. When the fire started, the vapors had had enough time to accumulate and cause a flashover or a small explosion on ignition. 
The force of the flashover blew the bedroom door off its hinges, down a hall, and onto a couch in the living room. A container for the gasoline was not found, but it could have been consumed in the fire, especially if it was plastic. But they had not determined what ignited the fire. Nelson released a statement stating, The fire and police investigators determined that Polly Stidham was responsible for setting the fire. The worst blaze in the history of the Dallas suburb of Grand Prairie. Gasoline was poured in the bedroom, but we don't know how or when she did that. A motive has not been determined. Deputy Chief Brad Geary stated to the press, What we believe at this time is based on the medical examiner's evidence. It appears that this is a murder-suicide. Until all evidence can be evaluated, we can't put a final closure on this. This investigation is still open, and the police would be happy to go over the investigation with the family. We know the cause of the deaths now, but we haven't figured out the whys and the hows. The point of this investigation is for the family and the community. We need to find out what caused this to occur and hopefully may prevent it from occurring again. If there were signs that caused this, then we could watch for it in other cases. And although Polly's late husband's sister, Betty Rook, leaned towards believing the police, explaining that Polly had been depressed and had threatened suicide, and told reporters, I talked to her Sunday and she said, I called to tell you that if I've done anything to you or anyone in your household, I'm sorry. However, this conclusion outraged Polly's side of the family, as they did not agree with the investigators' findings. They even provided a handwritten letter of Polly's that would indicate she was not suicidal. Her daughter Wanda, whose three children died in the fire, said that until the police reports and toxicology reports are conclusive, she would not believe it. The family had found the letter in the debris. Wanda read the letter during a news conference two days later on February 5, 1995. She believes the letter was written in December after she and her mother made a Christmas list for her children. The letter read, Oh, you ask me if I'm okay. Yes, I am. And yes, I have something and somebody to live for. One, God. Two, myself. Three, children. Four, family. And five, friends. Polly's son, Melvin Liddell, stated in that same conference, My mother was a giving person. She worked in daycare centers and most recently as a volunteer for her church. Reverend E.G. Shields, Polly's brother-in-law, stated at the news conference that the family had many unanswered questions. He said the family found furniture moved around and several items missing from Polly's house, but stated nothing specific. Polly also had a refrigerator full of fresh vegetables and food, which he felt indicated that she was planning to live. Rosie Shields, Polly's sister, said she had last spoke with her sister on Wednesday morning, February 1st. Polly sounded scared, but wouldn't say what was bothering her. 
She told me she would call me back the next day if everything worked out. But the next day, she was dead. On Wednesday, about 11.30 a.m., Polly went to Children's Learning Center to pick up her two-year-old granddaughter, Jasmine. The center's director, Carol Michael, said that Polly often came to pick up her three grandchildren at the center, but usually it was with Wanda Hartwell's prior permission. On that day, she had to call Hartwell to get permission for Polly to take the child. Polly had told her she just wanted to spend some special time with Jasmine. The director explained that nothing seemed strange about her behavior that day. The two oldest children, 8-year-old Tequila and 5-year-old Dominic, attended Dan D. Rogers Elementary School in Dallas. Their principal, Rex L. Cool, broke into tears remembering the kids. He recalled the always smiling face of Dominic in his school hallways. He remembered teasing the kindergartner by trying to take off the child's oversized glasses, stating, I kind of watched the little ones, and his smile earlier in the year, for some reason, drew me to him. He had a pair of glasses that I would always try to take off, and whenever I'd mess with him, he'd just smile. Barbara Land, a counselor at the elementary school, said Dominic and his older sister were bright and bubbly children who were popular with other students. She said that as many as 100 students received counseling about their deaths, and about 50 of which drew pictures about the things they remembered about Tequila and Dominic. The pictures were given to their mother. They talked to the kids about remembering the fun times and told them that they would be delivering the drawings to their mother. Seven-year-old Veronica Esperanza remembered Tequila as her best, best friend. Everyone cried in my class. I cried. We played and laughed and jumped and played leapfrog and lots of things. I just feel so sad. A study using data from 2003 to 2018 from Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Violent Death Reporting System to examine mental health factors among men and women who perpetrate murder-suicide reported that among 3,941 murder-suicide perpetrators, 92.5% were men and 7.5% were women. Perpetrators who are women were more likely to have a mental health problem, 33.4%, compared to men, 14.6%. Women were almost twice as likely to be perceived as being in a depressed mood at the time of the incident, 21.3% versus 11.8%. Further, women were often in mental health or substance abuse treatment, 20.9%, versus 8.3%, and had a history of mental illness or substance abuse treatment, 25.7% versus 11.7%, compared to men. More men who perpetrated murder-suicide had a positive alcohol test result, 25.5%, in comparison to women, 10.8%. In summary, 
murder-suicide perpetrators, who are women, were more likely to have mental health problems and receive mental health treatment compared to men, whereas men were more likely to use alcohol at the time of the incident. A critical step toward the goal of improving prevention of murder-suicides involves the evaluation of alcohol and substance use in murder-suicide incidents perpetrated in men and mental health problems in incidents perpetrated by women. say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, UPI archives, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Next episode, I'll be detailing a male murderer from the year 1995. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to my Patreon to hear an episode from me every week. I would also love for you to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.